So I have the distinct honor and pleasure of serving as moderator for this evening's um, debate. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and, and jump right on in with introductions of our speakers. For those of you who are following along in your program, um, who are over 40 and can't read the small print, um, I will go ahead and do the honors of first introducing Dr. Michael Brown. Michael Brown holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literature from New York University and has served as a visiting or adjunct professor at eight seminaries in the U.S. He is author of 30 books, including Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People, which has been translated into more than 12 languages. The highly acclaimed five-volume series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, and commentaries on the book of Jeremiah and Job. He is a contributor to the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exege Exegesis, I would stumble on that, as well as Biblical and Semitic Journals. Dr. Brown hosts the daily syndicate talk radio show, The Line of Fire, along with several TV programs that air in the United States and abroad. And he is a national and international speaker on themes of spiritual revival and cultural reformation. He has debated Jewish rabbis, agnostic scholars, gay professors, and others on radio, TV, and college campuses, and is widely considered to be the world's foremost messianic Jewish apologist. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Brown. I'm equally pleased to have the honor of introducing you to Rabbi Daniel Freitag. He is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi at Atlanta Scholars Kolel. He received a BS in psychology from SUNY and is a master and, and a master's in Talmudic law from Near Israel Rabbinical College. He is the director of programming for Kolel Dome in Dunwoody. His lectures and classes have achieved a significant degree of popularity in a very short time. The Kolel Institute, which he teaches and founded, has now spread to cities nationwide. His Shabbat beginner service services in his role as the unintimidator has a large following as well. His activities include all aspects of Kogel Dome programming as well as numerous home groups and other unique study programs. While Rabbi Freitag loves the South, he is a closet Yankees fan. <laughs> as a fellow New Yorker, I am a closet Mets fan. Yankees. Yankees. Uh, it's out there now. Um, Okay, so without further ado, um, we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about the format for this evening. So we will have opening statements um, for both of our debaters. Um, then we'll have first round of rebuttals, second rebuttals, closing statements. We will then go into an audience Q&A, and we will then have closing statements. And afterwards, we also will invite you to book signing as well as a reception out in the atrium. Yeah, I think Q&A is closing statements, then Q&A, and yeah, then not yeah. another oh, closing gotcha. statement. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Those are my closing statements, I think. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So um, without further ado, we'll go ahead and jump into opening statements. And to start off, first, Dr. Michael Brown. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here tonight. And uh, thank you, Rabbi Freitag, for agreeing to do the debate. Uh, my appreciation to the university and to Rosho Christie for hosting this, everyone watching online. We're so glad to have this opportunity to discuss these weighty issues. The question is not who's a better debater. 
the question is, who is more accurately presenting the truth about the Messiah? So I want to encourage you to listen with open hearts and with open minds. Now, when we talk about Jesus, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? It's important to know who we're talking about. And to do so, we have to unpeel a lot of the layers of church tradition. I have Jewish friends who grew up thinking that Jesus was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. So we, we want to dispel some rumors and misunderstandings. We're talking about Yeshua, who was called Christ because Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah. His mother's name was Miriam. His followers were all Jews. <clears throat> Men like Yohanan, names like that, all right? And, and Yaakov, better known as James, and Yehuda, better known as, as Jude. You've heard of St. John the Baptist. He was actually Rabbi Yohanan the Immerser. So we're talking about a fellow Jew, the most influential Jew who ever lived, and asking the question, is he indeed the Messiah of Israel? Now, according to the scriptures, he came first for his own people. And we must look at what the scriptures say about that, but he also came for the nations. What's the role of the Messiah? What's he going to do? According to Moses Maimonides, the Rambam, writing in the 12th century, he laid out some of the key things that the Messiah, son of David, would do. He would turn the hearts of the Jewish people towards the Torah. He would regather the exiles. He would rebuild the temple. He would fight the wars of the Lord. He would ultimately establish God's kingdom on the earth. Now, I agree that the Messiah will do those things. The question is, is that all that the Messiah will do? What I'm going to present to you tonight is that Maimonides saw the second half of the mission but missed the first half of the mission. The only way a president can serve the second term of his presidency is if he first serves the first term. The only way a team can play the second game of a, of a, a second half of a game is if they first play the first half. I will show you that Jesus Yeshua must be our Messiah. He's the only one who can do the second part because he alone did the first part. What we need to do now is go on a journey through our Bible, through the Hebrew Scriptures, remembering that the Bible doesn't say the Messiah, son of David, will do this and do this. We have to look to see who the Messiah is, how he's described, and what he will do. So we start in Genesis, the 12th chapter, when God calls Abram, Abraham. He's going to bless him, bless his seed, and then through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham's seed. And then, of course, God chooses Isaac, then Jacob, then out of the 12 tribes of Jacob, Judah. And in Genesis 49.10, it tells us that the rulership will come through Judah. This is ultimately now through David. And then it says the obedience of the nations, the obedience of the peoples will be his. So the Messiah is not just about Israel, but through Israel will bring light to the nations of the world. And in fact, we see in Isaiah 2, in, in the kingdom of God on the earth, that the, the peoples of the world will come streaming to Jerusalem. And we see in Isaiah 11, speaking about this son of David who will rule over an earth without war, that the nations will come to him. So let's keep this focus on the nations as we, we go into the book of Isaiah. And we see in Isaiah 42, it speaks of the servant of the Lord. Now, traditional Judaism will also say that servant is always Israel. Actually, there are Jewish traditions that recognize the servant in Isaiah, 2, uh, Isaiah 42 as referring not just to Israel, but as referring to the Messiah. In other words, there is a servant of the Lord within the nation who fulfills the mission of the nation. 
And if you'll study it carefully, don't just go by what you've heard. Do a careful study of Isaiah 40 to 55. You'll see when the servant is Israel as a nation, it's often joined together with Jacob, Jacob and Israel. And this servant is often deaf and unresponsive and languishing in exile because of its sins. The universal testimony of the Hebrew scriptures is that we were suffering in Babylonian exile because of our sins. Yet there's a servant within the nation who is righteous. And this servant, is, according to Isaiah 42, will be a light to the nations. Then when we get to Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord speaks. Some Jewish tradition says this is the prophet speaking. It's clearly an individual. He's identified with Israel, but his mission is to Israel. And when you read Isaiah 49, this is what the servant says. Basically, I failed in my mission. I was called to regather the tribes of Israel, but I failed in my mission. And God says to him, no, no, no. This is a small thing for you. I have not only appointed you to restore Israel, but to be a light to the nations. So this servant of the Lord who fulfills Israel's mission whose role is to regather the people of Israel. It seems as if he fails in his mission to Israel. But God says, no problem, you will be a light to the nations. And as we continue on reading about this servant, we see contrary to the servant Israel, which is suffering for its own sins. Isaiah 50 says you were sold because of your sins and iniquity. The whole testimony of the prophets is Israel is in exile because of his sins. The whole Torah law of blessing and cursing tells us that if our people were obedient, we'd be established in the land. If we were disobedient, we'd be scattered in exile. In contrast with the servant which suffers for its own sins, the Messiah, the servant within Israel, the one who seems to fail in his mission to Israel and becomes a light to the nations, he is not suffering for his sins, but for the sins of his own people. So when we get to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, what does it say according to the Targum, the ancient Jewish paraphrase? It recognizes that this speaks of the Messiah. And, and there's an ancient Jewish midrash, a midrash tanchuma, so, so a homiletical interpretation that was widely regarded in the ancient Jewish world. And to this day, the Messiah will be high and lifted up and lofty exceedingly. What does it mean? He will be higher than Abraham. He will be more exalted than Moses. And he will be loftier than the angels. That's verse 13. But 52, 14 says, first, he's going to suffer terrible disfigurement. I mean, we're just painting a picture. I'm just looking at what the testimony of Scripture says. So this one who will be highly exalted, this one who will be rejected by his people, yet welcomed by the nations before he is highly exalted, he will suffer terrible disfigurement and pain. And then as we get into Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, an amazing picture unfolds. That we, the Jewish people, thought he was suffering for his sins. What does it say? Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. But what happens? We thought he was being smitten and suffering for his own sins. And then what is, what's the revelation that the nation gets? He was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace is upon him. And at the cost of his wounds, there's healing for us. Again, 
Who is the prophet speaking of? And as we go on in Isaiah 53, we see that this one servant will die. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. It speaks of his burial, his death. He will die, and yet he will live on. Who is the prophet describing? Now, now we're often told that this passage speaks of the nation of Israel. Of course, it cannot be because Israel in exile was suffering for its own sins. Again, the universal testimony of the Hebrew scriptures to this effect, which we can demonstrate very easily with quote after quote after quote, including right in the surrounding section in Isaiah as well. But, but not only so, we are told that Isaiah 52, 13, here's what's going to happen. That the nations of the world will see Israel exalted at the end of the age and will be astonished because they'll think, Israel was suffering for its sins. Now we realize Israel was suffering for our sins. No, that's not the revelation. Ezekiel 39, this is it. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel were exiled only for their iniquity. This is what our prophets say. Because they trespassed against me so that I hid my face from them. The nations are not going to suddenly realize that the prophets were all wrong, though the words of the prophets will prove true. And when Israel was in exile and the nations of the world would overdo their punishment, what did the prophets say? And there are numerous verses that, that attest to this. The prophets at Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 30, that, that God would judge the nations where Israel was scattered. He would discipline Israel, but then he would destroy those nations. Israel's suffering in the nations didn't bring healing to ancient Babylon or healing to ancient Assyria. No, it brought the end of those empires. God judged them, whereas the Messiah's suffering brings healing to those that smote him, something radically and totally different. There's only one possible candidate, this one who seemed to fail in his mission to his own people, who was accepted as a light to the nations, who died for the sins of the nation where the nation thought he was dying for his own sins, and through his suffering has brought healing to multitudes, this one who died and yet lives on. It can only speak of one. What does it say in Psalm 118? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's the story of Yeshua, our Messiah. Now, you say, hang on for a second. I thought you said there was a progression, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah, and then David. What's this got to do with David? Ah, a great question. David was a priestly king. David was a king who often performed priestly functions. He wore a linen ephod. Only the priests wore that. He ate sacred bread that was for the priest. He, he built an altar and offered sacrifices. Only priests were supposed to do that. But let's go first a little further. In Psalm 110, which was either written by a court poet about David or written by David about the Messiah, it says of David as the prototype of the Messiah or it says of the Messiah directly, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. So David, like Melchizedek, Melchizedek would be a priestly king. And here's what you have to understand. Messiah first came to do his priestly work, to deal with sin, to make atonement for the sins of the nation, to intercede on our behalf. He will return at the end of the age to finish his mission. Again, he's the only possible candidate. Only the one who started the mission can fulfill the mission. You say, here, you're missing the whole point, though. We're Jews, and we don't believe in human sacrifice. Well, of course. Of course we don't believe in human sacrifice. 
Christians don't believe in human sacrifice. The whole Bible repudiates the idea of human sacrifice, but Judaism believes in the atoning power of the death of the righteous. Well-known phrase in, in, in Talmudic literature, the death of the righteous atones. So Rabbi Beryl Wine, respected Orthodox Jewish historian, he says this, he could refer to an old Jewish tradition dating back to biblical times that the death of the righteous and innocent served as an expiation for the sins of the nation or the world. The Zohar could explain Jewish mysticism with reference to Isaiah 53, that a righteous man is never afflicted save to bring healing to his generation and to make atonement for it. There's a chronicle of Jewish suffering, Yevon Mitzulah from the 17th century. It says, for since the day the holy temple was destroyed, the righteous are seized by death for the iniquities of the generation. There was a, a horrific slaughter, shocked the Jewish world in, in Harnof, neighborhood of Jerusalem a few years back, four religious Jewish men praying in the morning, rabbis killed by a Palestinian terrorist, bloody, horrific scene released for the world. There was a book that was released just a few weeks after that, and, and one of the rabbis in his eulogy, Rav Moshe Sternbuch, listen to what he said. Each of these four kedoshim, these holy men, who were killed is a korban Allah, a burnt offering, and it is their blood that has stopped the midas hadin, the attribute of justice, from taking vengeance on all of Kal Yisrael, the people of Israel. In other words, God was angry with the nation, and these four righteous men who didn't deserve to die, their death thwarted, uh, uh, warded off the wrath that was coming against them. This is a Jewish concept. That's what happened at the cross. It's not some foreign thing. It's not something just someone wears around their neck. It's not a crucifix hanging in a building somewhere. It was the perfectly righteous one taking the place of the sins of the world so that we, through repentance, repentance and faith, could receive forgiveness. Zechariah 6 there's a picture of a man called the branch, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, identify this branch as a son of David. He is the Messiah. And in Zechariah 6, the one who stands as a representative of the branch, who is it? It's a man named Yehoshua, Yeshua, the high priest. He sits on a chair or throne. He has a crown put on his head. It is a priest who serves as a representative of the coming branch, the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah is a priestly king. What's interesting is that the Judaism of the Dead Sea Scrolls prior to the time of Jesus, it identified two messiahs, the messiahs of Aaron and Israel. They were looking for two different figures. Judaism developed the figures of Messiah, son of Joseph, and Messiah, son of David. Messiah, son of Joseph, dying in the last great war, fighting for Israel, and then being raised up by the son of David, by the Messiah, son of David. And Rabbi Moshe Alshech, an influential Jewish homilist about 500 years ago, Darshan, what does he say about Zechariah 12, 10? They'll look to me when they pierce. He said, that's talking about the Messiah, son of Joseph, who died as a perfect atonement for the nation. Sounds like a Christian gospel message. It's because the foundations of a Christian gospel message go back to the Hebrew scriptures and to a Jewish way of thinking. And here's what's so interesting. The Talmud even asked this question. And I'm not quoting the Talmud to say the Talmud believed in Jesus. No, the rabbis believe in Jesus, no. But the Talmud asked the question, this Messiah, this, this one that's coming, is he, is he coming in the clouds of heaven? Because that's what Daniel 7 says. Or is he coming riding on a donkey? That's what Zechariah 9 says. And the answer is, if we're righteous and worthy, he'll come in the clouds of heaven. If we're unrighteous, if we're unworthy, he'll come riding on a donkey. No, it's not either or. The prophet said both. First he comes riding on a donkey, meek and lowly, to do his priestly work and to suffer and die. And then he will return as king at the end of the age. And here's what's fascinating. Haggai 2 tells us 
that the glory of the second temple, remember it was destroyed in 70 CE, the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple. God said, I'll fill this place with glory. Study the scriptures when it says fill with glory, it's speaking of his divine presence. And yet that second temple didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, didn't have the Shekinah, the divine presence, didn't have the fire falling. How was the glory of the second temple greater than the glory of the first? And then Malachi 3, it says, Ha'adom, the Lord, he will visit that second temple. And he will purge and purify his people there. How did that happen? And then Daniel 9 tells us that before the second temple is destroyed, that sin and transgression will reach their full measure and atonement and everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Well, what happened? The temple's been destroyed almost 2,000 years. I can tell you what happened. The Messiah came right on time. There's even Jewish tradition that indicates he should have come 17, 1800 years ago. But it says because of our sins, he didn't know. He came right on schedule, but because of our sins, we missed him. He came and he filled that second temple with glory and he healed the sick and he sent the Ruach, the spirit there. And he visited that divine temple with divine qualities as the prophet said would happen. And he made atonement for our sin and human sin reached its apex by nailing the Messiah to the cross. All this happened. Everything the prophet said happened. The Messiah had to come and begin his mission before the second temple was destroyed. He's the only one that can fulfill the rest of the mission. If he's not our Messiah, we have no Messiah. Tragically, in the New Testament, Paul warned. He warned the Gentile believers not to become arrogant and not to forget their Jewish roots. And he said, if you do, you too will be cut off. So a thousand years into church history, as so much of the church had departed from its Jewish roots, you, you have atrocities taking place and crusades and inquisitions and things like that. What's remarkable, as I've traveled the world and been on overseas trips more than 150 different times and talked to Christians in Asia and Africa, they're mortified when they hear this history. They can't believe that all Christians don't love Jewish people. They pray. I've been in jungles in India and met, met Christians there who pray daily for the Jewish people and for their protection in the land of Israel. Why? It's because those who really follow the scriptures are not Jew haters, they're Jew lovers. And that's why evangelical Christians have become the greatest friends Israel has in the world, because they read these words, they realize the Jewish roots of the faith, they realize their indebtedness to the Messiah of Israel and the people of Israel, and they have love. And it exposes the horror of anti-Semitism in church history as a complete and utter aberration. So I ask you tonight, who is the scripture speaking of? Yes, we agree he'll come at the end and set up his kingdom here on the earth in a world of perfect peace and rule out of Jerusalem. But I can tell you there's only one possible candidate, the one who came before the second temple was destroyed, just as the prophet said. The one who came and was rejected and misunderstood by his own people and yet died for the sins of Israel and the nations and rose from the dead and has become a light to the nations of the world. That's why hundreds of millions of people today worship and love the God of Israel because of the work of Jesus, the Messiah. Some years ago, a rabbi friend was talking to some students in my ministry school, and one of them said, Rabbi, you're supposed to be a light to the nations. He said, it wasn't a rabbi that came and brought the knowledge of God to my nation and turned us away from idolatry. It was a Christian missionary with this message of Jesus. Remember, he comes for his own first, the Jewish people. He becomes a light to the nations. At the end of the age, he will return and establish his kingdom. I encourage every Jewish and Gentile person here Turn your heart to the one and only Messiah of Israel, Jesus. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Dr. Brown. We will now have opening statements from Rabbi Freitag. Good evening. I just want to begin by mentioning that I'm very reluctant to be here for four reasons. Never trust a rabbi when they give you a list and a number. It's going to go like to seven. So uh, first of all, I obviously got the news that I'm doing this 48 hours ago. Um, Dr. Brown's uh, history and lineage is like, you know, longer than my arm, and I'm just a guy. Um, secondly, uh, in 24 hours, I'm making the first bar mitzvah uh, of my family for my oldest son. My in-laws are here tonight. Uh, my in-laws are here tonight, but uh, as opposed to some people who might see that as an opportunity to avoid their in-laws, fortunately, I'm not in such a position and I'd rather be at home. Thirdly, um, the concept of Jews debating Christians over the issue of Jesus' messiahship historically has had an anti-Semitic background. Jews only debate Christians in a public forum about, Chris, uh, about Jesus at the point of a sword. This is a history of the Jews in Europe. One of the more famous ones was a debate in Barcelona with Nachmanides he was forced to do it by the King James of Aragon, and he had a debate with an apostate Jew, Pablo Christiani. That's what they call him. There is a record of it. We never did this. We're not interested in convincing Christians. We're not interested in even having this debate because to a Jew, the question of whether Jesus is the Messiah is like debating whether there's an Easter bunny. The idea is laughable. And the fourth thing I want to say to you, why I'm reluctant, is because of what I just said. We like Christians. I grew up in the New York area. I grew up in a secular area. We live in a time when we are fighting a tidal wave of secularism and anti-religion. And as a religious Jew, I far prefer to live in a place where there are religious people standing up for religious principles. I will tell you the first time I was ever in Atlanta, I was on that plane train. A guy comes over to me. He says, you're Jewish, right? What gave it away? <laughs> so yeah, he says, you're the chosen people. How's that make you feel? <laughs> Nobody ever asked me that in New York, okay? <laughs> this is a true story. My dad is coming tonight. Last time he was here, he was going out for a walk. Grew up, you know, he's older than me, my dad. And he goes, he says, where's my hat? I want to go for a walk. I said, what do you need your hat for? He says, well, it's the south. I said, dad. This is not the 50s. The only thing that might happen in my neighborhood is you're going to get a big hug from someone who says, we love Israel. Keep the cap off. So I have no interest in convincing Christians. And if I, know, if I had known that there were no Jews in this room, I would not show up. The only reason I'm here is because of two basic things. This event was advertised to the Jewish community in the Jewish Times. And I had a good talk with the president here who mentioned that the president and vice president of this chapter were born Jewish. I'm here to speak to the Jews. I'm here because somebody reached out to my people to try to tear them away from their father. And I apologize to you who are righteous people, spiritual people, Bible believers, for my strong talk tonight to explain to you why Jews were willing to give themselves up to be burnt by the stake to not accept this idea. And let me explain it very clearly. As Dr. Brown pointed out, we're not debating who the Messiah is. We're debating what a Messiah is. Because we all agree 
that at the end times the Messiah does a number of things. So, he believes it's Jesus, I believe, I don't know. Maybe it's someone on the Yankees, you know, who knows, right? You never know. The issue is what is a Messiah? If, we were, if you'd come to me and say, why isn't Jesus the Messiah? I'd say, what's a Messiah? So, well, a Messiah is a guy who takes the ball, throws it downfield to a receiver. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. That's a quarterback. What about a guy who deflates the ball and throws it downfield to a receiver? That's Tom Brady. Different guy. So, what's a Messiah? In fact, that's not even the question. The real question we're asking is, what does God want you to do to be righteous? Does he want you to say, I accept the death of the Messiah as an atonement for my sins? The Christian view is, if I'm correct, that is what God wants you to do. It's the most important thing a person can do. It's the most important piece of information that God could give the people as it is the entire point of all of creation, according to the Christian view. A Jew hears that and just shakes their head and walks away. And they say, I have a God, a Father. He spoke to me personally. He told me how to be righteous. You're telling me that the way to be righteous is to accept the death of someone in place of my righteous works, my commandments, my obedience to the commandments of God? I'm going to bore you now. I stopped after three pages. I'm going to read you some things that God says. First person, unambiguous, no interpretation needed, no connections between Zechariah and Haggai. We're going to read God talk to the Jews. Deuteronomy 5. The Lord heard your voice when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. If only they had such a mind as this, to fear me and to keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Deuteronomy 7. You shall therefore keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances which I command you this day to do them. It shall happen because you listen to these ordinances and keep them, do them, that the Lord your God will keep you with you the covenant, etc. I'm going to skip. Leviticus 26. If you will not obey me and do not observe these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and abhor my ordinances, so that you will not observe all my commandments, you break my covenant, I will bring terror on you. Deuteronomy 4. Acknowledge today, take heart, that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you today for your own well-being. Deuteronomy 6. I know, I know we're, we're just getting repetitive. I stopped after three pages. There's just too much of this. If you had to do a book report on Tanakh, which were the only books published by the time Jesus was alive, and you say, what are, what are these books saying to the Jews? They repeatedly say one thing unambiguously. Keep my commandments. And that is the only path to righteousness. We'll keep reading. Deuteronomy 6, you must diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees. Deuteronomy 10, so now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today. Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 11, it goes on, Deuteronomy 13, but I want to skip ahead. Because you might say to me, Rabbi, maybe that was in the past. Maybe that's not in 2017. If only there was a place in the Bible, in the Torah, where God looks at you in 2017 and says, I want to talk to you, Jew, in 2017, not in the past, and I want to tell you clearly what I need you to do. Deuteronomy chapter 30. 
It will be when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I have presented before you. Now, if you look at the chapter prior, it's God saying, you keep my commandments, great. You don't keep my commandments, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to spread you throughout the nations. Seems to have happened. That you will take it to your heart among all the nations where Hashem your God has dispersed you. So you want to know, you God, in 20, a Jew, 2017, the Jew who's dispersed among all the nations, who, to whom this has happened to, you're going to take it to heart. Yeah, God, I want to know. I want to know. What do I do? You will return unto Hashem, your God, listen to his voice, according to everything that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and all your soul. Then Hashem, your God, will bring back your captivity, have mercy upon you, he will gather you in. If you are, you're dispersed or at the ends of the heaven, he will gather you in from there. He will do good to you. Verse 7, God will place all these implications of these curses upon your enemies and those who hate you who pursue you. You shall return and listen to the voice of God and perform all his commandments that I command you today. Wait a minute. Wasn't that line supposed to say you shall accept the Messiah as your atonement? No. It says, Jew, 2017, what are you supposed to do to be righteous? Keep my commandments. How God will make you abundant in all your handiwork, in the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your animals, when you listen to the voice of God to observe his commandments and his decrees that are written in this book of the Torah. But you'll say, but wait a minute, maybe it's not possible to do the law. Maybe I need some heavenly guidance. God is really smart. That's the next verse. Verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today, it is not hidden from you. It is not distant. It is not in heaven for you to say, who can ascend to heaven for us and take it for us? so that we can listen to it and perform it. Don't listen to someone who says, you need someone to come down from heaven to help you do it. You can do it. You want to know why Jews have never entertained this possibility? Because every single time we are told in the Bible, in the Torah, what we need to do to be righteous, in clear, first person, unambiguous terms, it is always the same thing. Keep my commandments. Now, if we were to believe that Jesus was the Messiah to the extent that he has changed that, changed that, that mandate, that really what I need to do, me, Daniel Freitag, what I need to do is to cut it out with the commandments. Stop keeping Shabbat. Stop keeping kosher. What I really need to do is figure out a way to accept somebody who died for my sins. Then all I need is for there to be one place in this book one, just once, anywhere, first-person statement to me from God that says, Dear Jew, I changed my mind. No longer shall you keep the commandments, for the Messiah will come, and through his death you will no longer need to keep the commandments. Once. I know you all have your laptops here. It's not here. Anywhere. Not once. Now, are there ambiguous things? Sure. You want me to take it down to my basement where I have a big corkboard and yarn and pins and clippings and a big old sign on top that says jet fuel can't melt steel beams and Haggai is here and Zakaria is here and Isaiah is here. And if you just pay attention and ignore the fact that I'm mistranslating, taking things out of context, quoting you things that have nothing to do with the Messiah, I guess you can convince, get convinced. I guess you shouldn't vaccinate your kids as well, right? But is there a single time that God has ever said clearly in this book, I changed my mind. 
He says it in Deuteronomy 30. You Jew who are in the exile, you want to know what to do? Keep my commandments. It's not only that he said keep my commandments. It's the fact that every single place where this should be, it isn't. Every single place where there's an opening for some prophet to say, Jews, you know what you need to do? There's a guy who's going to come and free you from the, from the commandments. I've changed my, what I've said 50 times clearly to your face, first person unambiguous. I've changed it. I don't know. Let's look at the end of the book, book of Ecclesiastes. Koheles. King Solomon is thinking about life. And his final line is, Sof Tavar, end of the word. Hakol Nishma, now that we've heard everything. Es Elohim Yirah, fear God, umitzvosav shemar, observe his commandments, ki zeh because that's all there is to man. Malachi, one of the last prophets of the Jews. The Jews are losing their prophecy. And he ends his book, this is my Haftorah, by the way, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Chorev for all Israel. Every single time there's an opportunity for a prophet to tell us what to do and change it, he says the exact opposite and says, no, keep those commandments. And every time there's a discussion of, can you do it? The prophet says, of course you can do it. And in the past, and in the future, and in Ezekiel 11, where it talks about the messianic age. And it says, and they will keep my commandments. Why are we going to keep commandments for? Don't we have a Messiah who died to release us from the commandments? You want to know why Jews went to their death for a thousand years, burnt at the stake, and didn't give up? Because they knew this. The idea that someone came and told us, you don't need to listen to what God said anymore. Listen to me, is laughable. The idea that a Jew would accept a Messiah dying so that you no longer have to keep the commandments is a laughable idea. And the fact that someone has to, literally, because they cannot find a single verse, first person, declaring the opposite, they have to weave a web. And astonishingly, quote rabbinic literature. What are you doing quoting rabbinic literature to prove Jesus? You got scripture. Where is it in the scripture? What are you talking about? Of course, none of these rabbis believe in Jesus. And half the time, the, the quote, quotation of the rabbinical literature is out of context, misunderstood. There's a reason those rabbis didn't believe in Jesus. I study Talmud. I've heard these quotations before. They're out of context. They're silly. We can talk about them later. But I want to focus on this point. Your father comes to you. He gives you a $10 bill. He says, I'm giving you this $10 bill. I want you to go buy milk at the grocery. Milk, M-I-L-K. It's white. It comes from a cow. You drink it. Don't get anything else. Don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise. If someone tells you you can't buy milk, don't believe them. If someone tells you they're not, that they're really the grocer or they're partners with the grocer, don't listen. I'm testing you. Go get the milk. This is the only thing I want from you. And you walk outside, and two blocks away, a fellow goes, hey, kid. You're really supposed to give me those $10. See, I'm pretty sure my father was pretty darn clear. Now, you don't understand. M-I-L-K, it stands for Messiah is like king, and I'm the Messiah, and you're supposed to give me the $10. What? Re that's what you got? Your Remember that story your father once told you about these two people talking about milk? 
and how one guy gave the other guy milk. Remember that story? That story was a way to secretly hint to you not to do what he told you, first person, directly, unambiguously. It's a joke. This is why. You want to know why Jews don't believe in Jesus? It's not because we have something against the idea. It's because the concept that something has changed between Jews and God, and that he has altered our covenant to be something other than it was, is appalling and offensive and fundamentally anti-Semitic. And I'm not blaming you here. Generally, people who are Christian today, you're not anti-Semitic, like I told you before. This comes from a place of saying, you're no longer chosen, we are. But the problem is, God made it clear. When he wanted to say something clearly, he said it clearly. When he didn't want you to eat blood, he said, don't eat blood. Remember, we're debating the most important, critical piece of information that God could give humans in all of creation and history. Am I not right? To a Christian, the most important piece of information in all of existence is the idea that someone will come as the Jewish Messiah and alter the covenant so that it no longer is that the Jews have to obey the law and get righteous by keeping the law, but because someone is going to die, release them from the law so they no longer have to keep it. That's the most important piece of information, and God never says it once before the coming of Jesus to the Jews. You wonder why Jews didn't buy it? It's not there. Sure, you got your yarn and your clippings, and you got your out of context, mistranslated. I'm not making this up. We just don't have enough time to go through the various mistranslations and out of context things that were said here tonight and are continuously said. But that's my answer. And that's every Jew's answer. So if you want to know why we don't accept it, it's because every single verse in our Torah tells us what we need to do. And if you're a Jew, because that's primarily who I'm here for, you need to pay attention. Your God is talking to you. In Deuteronomy 30, he's saying, you want to get right? Who are you going to listen to? Me or the guy with the yarn and the clippings? I'm unambiguous. This guy's going to pull out ambiguous things things that you didn't realize he's mistranslating, things you didn't realize he's taken out of context. Right? This is the key here. Listen, the main issue in all of this is this. When you open up this book, are you buying or are you selling? Do I have an idea that I have to squeeze in here? Hey, man, if you believe that 9-11 was an inside job, you're going to spend hours on the internet finding all those little proofs. And if you want to believe that vaccines cause autism, you're going to quote this and quote that. And you're going to make all that yarn connect. Are you buying or are you selling? Because if you're buying and you just want to read this book and ask it, what is it saying, in fact? What do the Jews need to do? The answer is obvious. If you're selling, on the other hand, and you've come in with a preconceived notion of what needs to happen, sure, you can get an extra large ball of yarn and weave that web with all the ambiguous statements, some which don't talk about a Messiah, some which don't talk about atonement, some which don't talk, but there you're never going to find that place where it says, first person, hey, Jews, I changed my mind. You don't need to keep the commandments anymore. You just need to accept someone who died for you.
you, Rabbi Freitag. Okay, for first rebuttal, Dr. Brown. All right, Rabbi, I appreciate that passionate presentation. Unfortunately, it had nothing to do with the subject whatsoever, as you'll see momentarily. But we'll address every question you raise. Also, very importantly, I look forward to you giving me one example in your rebuttal time, one example of one verse taken out of context or mistranslated. Just one. All right. Uh, let me set the record straight on a number of things. And, and by the way, when I heard Mr. Norman couldn't be here, I said I'll give a lecture with open mic Q&A, but I really want to do a debate. I, I want it to be fair so the other side can be presented. And then when I heard Rabbi Freitag agreed, I actually changed my notes on short notice so I could have less preparation time as well. But these are things we've lived with for decades, and it's not like we need to prepare to talk about them. Uh, let me set the record straight about debates. The earliest debates took place because many, many, many Jews followed Jesus as Messiah, and many didn't. So there were debates in the synagogue as recorded in the New Testament writings. So those are the earliest <coughs> debates. But what bothers me is this, to be honest. So many of us who are Jewish believers in Yeshua, as soon as we came to faith, we were brought, you have to talk to the rabbi. We were intimidated. We didn't know much Hebrew. We didn't have background. I have friends of mine who were kidnapped. I have another colleague who was beaten, okay? Horrific things happened. And, and, and I was always challenged to debate. We weren't allowed to bring other people with us that knew more. As I learned more, I said, can we discuss these things in public? No. Isn't that odd? That the moment we come to faith, someone wants to take us. How, I mean, if you're a Jewish believer in Jesus, almost all of us have had the same thing. You need to go talk to the rabbi. And then we say, can we bring someone who knows a little more? No, no, we just want to talk to you. Well, can we discuss the things in public? No. Does anyone have anything to hide? Why not put everything on the table so we can get the facts clear instead of intimidating people in private? To me, that's bothersome, that's disingenuous. And also, I appreciate Rabbi Freitag's love for the Christian church, but you have to understand, if what he's saying is true throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, throughout your faith in Jesus, if the idea that Jesus is the Messiah is laughable, then unless the Gentiles get the dregs, the Jews know it's deception. The Jews know it's not true. The Jews know it's a myth. The Jews know that what's written in the New Testament isn't real. But it's fine for you Goyim, for you Gentiles. That, to me, is not anti-Semitic. That's anti-Gentile. And let's face the facts. If Jesus is not the Messiah of Israel, he's not the Savior of the world. Two billion-plus Christians are believing nonsense. There is no other alternative. Let's face the facts. Now. The question is, what does God want us to do to be righteous, to believe in him and to obey him? Who said that changed? This whole polemic that Jesus tells you to stop keeping the commandments, the law was never given to the Gentiles. The, the law of Sinai was never, Mount Sinai was never given to the whole Gentile world. That was never required. The first followers of Jesus, Yeshua, lived as Jews. Yeshua said it, Matthew 5, 17, don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So all of his first followers were Jews who kept the commandments. And this, again, strikes me as utterly disingenuous. There are many people here, I'm sure, who are part of Messianic Jewish congregations. Why? Because as Jews, they say we're still Jews. We still observe the Sabbath. We don't keep a lot of the rabbinic traditions because we see those as adding to the Torah. And God was very explicit, don't add. When you light the Sabbath candles and say, as God commanded us, he never commanded. Show me in the Torah where he commanded. He never commanded that. So many of the practices are not kept or they're kept differently, just as within different branches of Judaism, there are different expressions. But many Messianic Jews, that's how they live. They live as Jews. Many of them live in Israel. They're, they're a Sabbath observant. They, they, they serve the country. They observe the, the calendar of Israel. And here's what bothers me. 
when, when Messianic Jews seek to live as Jews, the Orthodox community and the rest of the Jewish community persecutes them and says you're being deceptive. You have no business doing this. First, we're told we're supposed to keep the commandment as Jews, and then when Jews try to keep the commandment as followers of Jesus, we're called deceptive. How is that? Can't be both ways. Let's go a little further, though. If all there is is keeping the commandments, why did you need a sacrificial system? Why is there a need for Yom Kippur Day of Atonement? If, and how is it working out for us? The temple's been destroyed almost 2,000 years. How is it working out? If you, sir, want to be righteous enough and stand before God and say, I stand before you by my righteousness, by keeping the commandments, go ahead. I'm going to plead for mercy. I'm going to do the very best I know how, and I'm going to plead for mercy. The good news is that God gave us atonement. This is in the Torah. If you believe the law, then you've got to believe all of it. And the atonement system is central. What happened to the blood sacrifices? That's why rabbinic Judaism developed this idea. And show me where I've quoted one rabbinic concept or one rabbinic text out of context or mistranslated. Please. That's a strong claim. I stand behind every syllable of every text I quoted. And it's not just pieced together this mystical thing. I, I give verse after verse after verse after verse that I show you contextually has to do with the Messiah. And we're told, what does that have to do with the Messiah? But when we get back to embracing all of God's Torah, there must be atonement. And that's why rabbinic Judaism came up with the idea of the atoning power, the death of the righteous. Hence some of these quotes that said, since the temple was destroyed, what God gave for atonement was the death of the righteous. Now, now here's something else to understand. What's a fundamental message of Yeshua and his first Jewish followers? Do tshuva, repent. You can find it, I, I mean, I could do a survey of the New Testament. I could start in Matthew 3, and then go to Matthew 4, and then go to Mark 1, then go to Mark 6, then go to, to Luke 5, and to Luke 13, and to Luke 15. I could show you that, that Yeshua sends his disciples out in Luke 24 with the message that repentance and forgiveness of sins must begin in Jerusalem. That's the message of the whole Hebrew Bible. Repent, turn back to God in obedience, and he will forgive you through the atonement that he's made. And all the blood sacrifices pointed towards this one. What, what does Rashi tell us in, in, in Leviticus 17 about blood atonement? What's the purpose of it? Life for life, substitution. It doesn't give us the right to sin. It doesn't give us the right to do whatever we want to do. It rather brings forgiveness because we're guilty. And if we rely on our own work, I don't care. The very best, finest, saintliest person here, next to God, we're dirty. Next to God, we're unclean. Next to God in his light, we're on our faces saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's why he sent the Messiah. He came to seek and save the lost. And if it was just as easy as Israel keeping the commandments and we're just going to turn around and do it, why did Jews every day say, I believe in the coming of the Messiah? Why pray daily for the coming of the Messiah? Why pray for the rebuilding of the temple and the res restoration of the sacrificial system if all you need to do is be obedient? Why cut out that, that part of the Torah? In fact, if, if you want to look at what the Torah says about repentance, as important it is, that is dwarfed, dwarfed by what it says. First person, by God, over and over and over and over about blood, 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 blood. Why? Substitution. He is our righteous substitute. He is the vehicle through which God has mercy. That's why Isaiah 53 starts with the question, who has believed our report? Who has believed this report about him? And it's always the same way. We believe God, we turn to him in repentance, and he forgives us. You get into the book of Acts in the New Testament. You find in Acts 3, Acts 5, 
The same thing, actually, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 11, Acts 17, Acts 20, Acts 26. The same thing. The gospel consists of repent and believe. Turn to God in repentance. Believe in him for his grace and mercy. And then live a life of obedience that is well pleasing to him. Now, when, when we are told, by the way, that God changed his mind. Where did God change his mind? It's not changing his mind. It's going along with the plan from the start. And initially, he gave the land unconditionally to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then made a covenant, the Sinai covenant. And we repeatedly failed. In the days of Josiah, this righteous king, in the, in the early 600s BCE, he tried to turn Israel back in repentance. And, and, and he died. And the nation sinned. And we went into exile in Babylon. And the temple was destroyed. And at that time, what does God's first person say in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31? Days are coming when I, God, first person, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. What does it say? Not like the Sinai covenant. Now, you can debate. Does that mean that some of the laws will change? Or does it mean that we'll just have supernatural ability to keep the laws? We can have that debate. That's fine. But God, first person, says, I, what we, we were asked for it. There it is. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant I made on Sinai. Again, you could say it's going to have the same content, but we'll be able to obey it. It's going to have different content. What's interesting, as the rabbi certainly knows, is that there are Talmudic and rabbinic texts that say in the world to come, some of the laws will change. In the world to come, the only sacrifices will be thanksgiving offerings. Why? Because the circumstances change. If God has forgiven the sins of Israel, that's what he says. I'll forgive their sins and remember them no more. That's the new covenant. That's what Yeshua accomplished on the cross. The new covenant, dying for our sins so we could receive forgiveness and now live a life of obedience to God. That's the message. A changed heart so we live different lives. Not lawless lives, but different lives in obedience to God. If all of our sins are forgiven, will you need sacrifices after that? Will you need Day of Atonement? These are things that are even debated and discussed in rabbinic literature. And as for why I quote rabbinic literature, I made plain that the rabbis didn't believe in Yeshua, but I do it for several reasons. One is to say, probably the rabbi will say, Dr. Brown took the verses out of context, and Judaism has never believed in this and this and this and this and this. Well, actually, I'll show you rabbis who did believe those things. So this is not just some later Christian innovation. Also, I believe that in every culture, God has planted redemptive truth and things that point to him. So when there's a tradition in the Talmud that many Jews believe to this day that the world will exist for 6,000 years, 2,000 years of chaos, meaning from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years of Torah from Abraham to the Messiah, and then 2,000 years of the Messiah from, from the Messiah for a 2,000-year period, which would put us for the last roughly 1,800 years in the Messianic era, according to Judaism, and, and, and some say, yeah, it began, but this is a transition age. So all I'm saying is this notion of being in a transition age is not some later Christian extrapolation. These are things we can even find within rabbinic literature, and I believe these are things God has planted here. So remember, I gave you a clear and systematic presentation from the Hebrew Bible describing the Messiah. Now it's time for Rabbi Freitag to rebut that. Again, one verse that I quoted out of context one word that I translated. Thankfully, I get to respond after his rebuttal. You'll see it's exactly the case we made. The Messiah of Israel came when he was supposed to come, did what he was supposed to do. And by the way, this myth that, of course, Jews don't believe in him. 
I, I can introduce you to rabbis over the centuries who have believed in him. There are a couple hundred thousand Jewish believers in Yeshua around the world today, and they are steadfast in their faith. And you talk about those who suffer. I have friends ostracized, put out by the Jewish community for their faith, but they will not deny the one that they love in obedience to the God of Israel. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. How about Freitag? Your rebuttal. I'm glad that uh, Dr. Brown took me up on my challenge to find one, even one. Didn't happen, but he tried. One verse. First person that speaks to the Jews and says, you no longer need to keep the commandments. Someone died and freed you from that. Once. The most important piece of information of the Christian idea not found once. But he did tell you that it's in Jeremiah. And I'll read that to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's pretty clear. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. Wow, a new covenant. Not like that covenant. Let me ask you, what is that covenant? What is it? What's that new covenant? What is it? Is it that someone dies and you no longer have to keep your commandments? Has that covenant happened? I mean, the, the claim of the Christian is that covenant began with Jesus, right? That's when it changed. Well, we have the advantage of having the next line. For this is the covenant. Ooh. It's the next line. That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Ready? Because we're about to find out what that new covenant is. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Has this covenant happened? Are we here tonight? Are we talking about knowing the Lord tonight? Has this covenant happened? The covenant that we're told, the new covenant, which, by the way, says nothing about a person dying and no longer being responsible for, for commandments, the, thing, the one thing I asked for is not here. In fact, if you want to know, what is this talking about? It's in Jeremiah. It's saying there's a new covenant, and um, for this is the covenant. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. Beautiful. You know where else you're going to find that? Ezekiel chapter 11. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the stony heart out of your flesh and will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I shall be their God. Wow, it's the exact opposite. How about Ezekiel 36? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my ordinances and do them. So we were just told that God did, in fact, say first person, this is the only one there is, something, that there's a new covenant. But then he says, anticipating something, for this is the covenant that I will make in those days. He's not waiting for you to figure out what the covenant is. He tells you right there in that verse. And what does he say? Something's going to happen to the spirit of the people, and no longer will one teach another about to know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the greatest to the least. You may live in Kennesaw and think everyone's religious, 
It ain't true. Has this happened yet? This new covenant? Is this new covenant that someone will die and release you from the commandments? No. Where is that statement? God says 50 times, I don't know, maybe more. Jews, in the future, after the destruction of the temple. Wait, Rabbi, God's talking, well, let's, let's look at our scripture. We have the famous quote, the story when Solomon dedicates the temple. And he has a long prayer in 1 Kings, which I thought I had marked over here. 1 Kings chapter 8. And uh, verse 33. It's a long prayer, standing before the newly built temple. If your people are defeated by an enemy because they sinned against you, and they return to you and praise your name and pray and supplicate to you in this temple. Actually, that's not the one I'm looking for. All right. 46. When they sin against you, for there is no man who never sins, and you become angry with them, and you deliver them to an enemy, and their captors take them captive to an enemy land far away or nearby. I guess we don't have a temple if God took us out of the land, and we're really far away. I don't know, Kennesaw, Georgia. And they take it to heart in the land where they were taken captive, and they repent and supplicate to you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned. We have been iniquitous, we have been wicked, and they return to you with all their hearts and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who had captured and to, uh, to them and to pray to you by the way of the land that you gave to their forefathers, may, and by the way of the city you chosen through the temple I built for your name. May you hear their prayer and their supplication from heaven. He's saying, you know, God, please, when they lose this temple, they no longer have this system of sacrifice, and they're far away. Well, you know what the next verse is, right? Send them that guy who's going to die. No, it doesn't say that. They will turn to you in prayer and repent, and you will hear their prayer. No blood, no sacrifice. Every time it's clear, every time there's a clear statement of what a Jew needs to do, it's the same thing every time. And there is not one, not one statement anywhere in this book, first person, unambiguous, that there's an idea that someone will die and release the Jews from the obligations of the commandments. Dr. Brown began by saying, well, you know, God never commanded the Gentiles. I told you, I'm here to talk to the Jews. Are we saying the Jews are obligated to keep the commandments? Perhaps. Perhaps that's what Dr. Brown believes. It's certainly not standard Protestant Christianity. Then he says, you know, we are all dirty before the Lord. You can't be righteous. That's funny because in Ezekiel 14, 14, the prophet re refers to Daniel as righteous. Daniel lived during a time when there was no blood sacrifice in the Babylonian exile. How did he do that? The idea is laughable. And I, I, I find it strange that Dr. Brown mentioned something along the lines of, you know, if two billion Christians are wasting their... I'm not, you know, if you ask me to come and debate, I apologize for my strong words. But I just have to say something. For a thousand years, Jews were put to the sword and to the fire, exiled, massacred, and raped over this issue. I apologize if I speak strongly, but a little indignity is, I guess, an equal thing. I apologize. I'm speaking to my Jews. I'm here to tell you why 
why we never gave, we never gave in. Because there is nothing there, nothing. We are not going to abandon our father who told us clearly, first person, what we need to do. And when someone comes on this stage and says, you can't do that, you can't be righteous by the law, you can't be obedient, we're all dirty before God, I say, gee, I thought I just read Deuteronomy 30, where he says, if someone says to you, you cannot do it, it's not true, you can do it. It is not up in heaven, it is not far from you, it's not up in heaven for someone to bring it down for you. Isn't that what I'm being told? It's up in heaven, you can't do it? Literally, the words of the Torah. Let's read them again. For this commandment that I command you today is not hidden from you. It is not distant. This is Deuteronomy 30, talking to Jews in 2017, saying, keep my commandments. It's not distant. You can do it. It is not in heaven for you to say, who can ascend to the heaven for us and take it to us so we can listen to it and perform it? This is literally a description of Christianity. Literally. Saying to the Jews, you cannot keep the commandments, you cannot be righteous through the commandments in a time when you are exiled. You need someone to come down from heaven and do it for you. And God says, don't listen. It's not true. This is unambiguous. This doesn't need interpretation. I don't need to weave together things. And if I have time later, we certainly will discuss some of the statements that were completely out of context. I don't have a background in New Testament studies but I do have a background in Talmudic studies. I know the Talmudic statements that are being brought, and I know why no rabbi ever saw that as a statement of the idea that, that's being expressed here. It's actually kind of obvious, but we're not here for a Talmud class. We're here to discuss scripture, because the one thing that we do share is the scripture. The Talmud is not both of ours. We understand that Christians don't accept the Talmud. It's the scripture alone. And so I say to you, here's the scripture. The Torah tells me, the Jew, and every other Jew in this room, there's only one way to righteousness. Keep his commandments. Now, keep it in 2017, keep it in the past, keep it in the future. I'm never going to take that away. Will some of the laws change? Maybe, you know, we can discuss that. That wasn't the issue. The issue is, is it true that someone will come and die and release you from the burden of the law, such that the way to righteousness is no longer the law and obedience to it, but belief in this person who died. Once, first person, unambiguous, anywhere. Remember, the most important piece of information stated by the Christian belief, not once. I see the rest of my time. Thank you, Rabbi Freitag. Okay, we'll begin second rebuttals. Dr. Brown. All right. Let me just get their time reset there. Okay. All right. I, I want to be fair and leave open the possibility that with more preparation, Rabbi Freitag could have backed up his claim that I've been misquoting, taking things out of context, mistranslating. Because I didn't get one example. You said there were so, 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 so many. Just 12-minute rebuttal time. Just Give me one. Every word I've said thus far about the mission of the Messiah, I just want to point out, remains unrebutted and unchallenged. Every single text I quoted about the mission of the Messiah and the identity of the Messiah. Just remember that when you leave, when you go home, 
All right. Second thing, the rabbi has not demonstrated that Elvis Presley is a Martian. Did you hear one word from him? You say, well, no, that's not the topic. Well, who made the topic that I believe that someone dies to relieve us from keeping the commandments? Where, where did that become the topic? Who made that the topic? There was never the topic. When we come to faith in the Messiah, he gives us a new heart so that we now, by nature, want to obey God and do his will. So everything I'm supposed to prove is nothing that I believe, nothing that I've ever said, nothing I've ever hinted at, nothing in any text I've ever quoted. So I could just as well say you haven't proven Elvis Presley's a Martian. So when you ask for a text, show me one place where it says that someone's going to die you free, to free you from keeping the commandments. Who made that the subject? What does that have to do with the Messiah? Nothing, actually. And I said, Jeremiah 31 can be debated. Does it mean that the Torah, the same content, will be put in our hearts and now we supernaturally obey it? Or that Torah, which has wide meaning in Judaism, when Jews speak of Talmud Torah, they don't just mean the five books of Moses. Is there going to be new teaching, new Torah? That could be. You say, but as Jeremiah 31 happened, this, this forgiveness of sins and now uh, supernatural obedience, yes and no. We are in a transition age. This is a, a deep concept to study out. But you'll see the prophecies about the Jewish people returning from exile say that when we return from exile, God will change our hearts and the Messianic era will be ushered in. Prophet after prophet after prophet declares it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, verse after verse. Did it happen? Well, the Jews returned from exile, but not with the expected number. And the temple was rebuilt, but not with the expected glory. It began, but not in the expected way. The same with the coming of the Messiah. It begins, but not in the expected way. All of us, though, who've been transformed, people like me as a heroin-shooting teenager, overnight transformed, now loving God, reading the scriptures, just wanting to obey him with all my heart. And many others, we can say, yes, we've experienced this. We've experienced this new life where now we just want to obey God and follow him. And we're in a transition age. The Messianic era has begun, but it has not yet reached its fullness. Now, 1 Kings 8, ooh, that was the worst place to go to argue that sacrifices aren't needed. 1 Kings 8 is paralleled in 2 Kings 6, and, and here's what happens. The temple's being dedicated, Solomon prays. If, if plague happens, if this happens, when we turn toward this temple and pray, forgive us, right? And then if we fight more and some of us are exiled, turn towards this temple and pray. The rabbi said, no, 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 no temple, no sacrifices, no blood, just pray and there's forgiveness. No, no, no. God himself, first person, tells us otherwise. Second Chronicles 7, verse 12, I have established this temple as a Beit Zevach, a house of sacrifice. Why? That was the purpose of the temple, atonement being made. Atonement, repentance, obedience, they go hand in hand. And what does God say there? Just keep reading the text, Second Chronicles 7. I'm not making it up, read it for yourself. But if you disobey, if it gets to the point of disobedience that God says, I will bring judgment, he'll destroy the temple and he'll scatter us from the land and we will not have forgiveness or atonement as a nation on a national level. That remains to this day unless God has given us a better way. Either we have been bereft of national atonement according to the explicit testimony of God himself in 2 Chronicles 7 or in his mercy, he has sent the Messiah, as described explicitly, as the one who takes our sins and by his wounds we are healed. As far as our own righteousness, again, 
I'm not saying we don't keep God's commandments. I'm not saying we don't seek to obey him and follow him. What I'm saying is this, how is it working out in terms of our own righteousness? Didn't the prophet Isaiah say all of our righteousness is like filthy rags? Didn't God say in Genesis 8 the reason he wasn't sending a flood on the world again because the thoughts of human beings are only evil continually from our youth? Didn't Ecclesiastes say in the seventh chapter there's not a righteous man on the earth who does what's right without sinning? Doesn't Proverbs 20 say who can say I've kept my heart pure? Doesn't Psalm 143 say God don't enter in contention with your servant because no living human being can be righteous in your sight. In ourselves we cannot be righteous. We need mercy and we need repentance. It is both and. And isn't it interesting that Daniel is the one who can look ahead and believe and see that God will bring redemption before the second temple was destroyed and that everlasting righteousness will be brought in, atonement be made. It's what the text said. And listen, I, I have written a book called Our Hands Are Stained With Blood that details the horrors of, quote, Christian persecution of the Jewish people. As I've shared that around the world, I've had Christians come up to me weeping in states of shock. They've never heard of it. They're mortified. It is horrific. It is ugly. I mention it in my opening comments. These were false followers of Jesus. These were demented people who thought that they could spread the gospel through the sword. And notice the Crusades happened a thousand years after the time of the New Testament. And they begin as defensive wars with Catholic crowds going to take back land from the Muslims and then they turn on the Jews and say, kill a Jew and save your soul and offer them baptism and death. I fully understand why Jews didn't bow down to that. That's horrific. And if they bow down to it, they'd be no closer to Jesus than closer to a rock that had nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. But that only happened in history when professing Christians turned away from the Jewish roots of the faith. And I know Christians around the world that look for Jewish people to say, please forgive us for what these people did. It is horrific. It's a stench. And I understand why it gives Jesus a bad name. But don't be robbed. Don't let our history rob you of the truth about the Messiah. So again, look at our history. The temple's still not been rebuilt. Even the land of Israel that we love, it's just there a couple of weeks ago. We recognize so much of the nation is, is secular and anything but observant. Israel stands by the mercy of God. And I would encourage every Jewish person here, don't look to your own righteousness. Don't boast about how good you are. Don't, don't hope on Yom Kippur when you beat your breast and, 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 and confess every imaginable sin. Don't hope that somehow there'll be some kind of atonement. No, 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 no. Atonement has been made. The Messiah, Isaiah 53, 6. Kulanu katzon ta'inu, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Ish ledarko paninu, each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has put upon him the iniquity of us all. You can believe the rabbi, you can believe me, or you can believe the Bible. I say, let's believe the testimony of scripture, believe the Bible, believe in Messiah, what he's done, and let him change our hearts so we can love and obey the God of Israel. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Rabbi Freitag, your second rebuttal. Not one, still. Okay, but the question was, who changed the subject? Well, I got here tonight, Dr. Brown began, and he said, a Messiah does two things, because we all agree what the Messiah does at the end, but he actually does something at the beginning. Well, what is that thing that that Messiah does at the beginning when he comes? Maybe I'm wrong. I thought the Christians believed that he dies and frees us from the burden of the, of the law. Again, I don't know the New Testament very well, but I'm pretty sure it says something like that. 
You know what? I remember when I was young, I used to watch sports. You saw this too, the guy with the clown wig, right? The big sign. Remember him? What did it say? John 3.16. I may be Jewish, but I still want to know what that means, right? Didn't have the internet. I got to find out. Go to the library, right? For God so loved the earth. How does it go? God so loved the world because he sent his only begotten son. I don't know. It's in him. Yeah. That is the debate. Dr. Brown mentioned it. And it's clear that that is the debate because we don't agree what a Messiah is or does. And then Dr. Brown came and said, you know what? You want to show me, you got to show me one example where I misled. I took something out of context. And then he repeated it. Jeremiah 31. Remember, he started out and told you that there's a new covenant, as it says in Jeremiah. But he left out what the covenant was. He implied it was something else than the text said. So I got up and clarified, read you the words of the scripture. Let the scripture talk. Let's not listen to people on a stage. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This has not happened. So what is the answer? Well, it's kind of complicated, you know. Sorry. That's not going to win. That's not going to take it. That's not going to take me away from what God told me to do. And you tell me that I can't do the law? And there's all sorts of citations. For all of us are dirty and there's no righteous person who can keep the law. That's great. Let me cite to you Numbers 14.24. Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and followed me fully. That's weird. 1 Kings 15. Asa did that which was just in the eyes of the Lord as had done his father. That's odd. 2 Kings 22, and he, Josiah, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father and turned not aside to the right or the left. How did, why is the scripture telling you these people are righteous by their actions? Didn't we just hear that all of us are sinful and it's impossible to be righteous? Or perhaps you can be righteous without being perfect. Or perhaps God is not a liar when he told the Jews, I want you to obey. And when you make a mistake, I want you to repent. You know, Isaiah, first chapter. First chapter. If your sin shall be as scarlet, this shall be white as snow. Change your ways. You know what? It's funny because we talk about sacrifice as being this, you know, the, mo the main way of, of atonement. In fact, Isaiah rails against it. There was this terrible problem. Jews thought, or somebody thought, that sacrifice was the only way to atonement. And so they thought, hey, I can do whatever I want. Bring some sacrifices, right? Right? God says, Isaiah chapter 1, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Let's skip to 15 or 14. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Bearing them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Blood. So what should you do? Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. God says, what kind of crazy idea do you have that somehow through sacrifice you're going to be atoned? Stop doing evil. So Dr. Brown started and said, gee, I never said you never need to keep the law. I believe, or at least, and I don't want to, it's not fair for me to paraphrase him or quote him, 
I'm going to quote my understanding of what he said, or at least the Christian idea. That when a person accepts Jesus into their heart, they naturally obey God. Right? I mean, it's a kind of idea, right? Now, I don't know what you mean by obey God. I have a book. It tells me how to obey God. Right? It tells me to put fringes on the corners of my garments. I didn't need Jesus, but I noticed that all the people who follow Jesus don't do that. Right? What does it mean that you obey God because you have Jesus inside of you? You naturally obey God? Define obey. God gives all these commandments. I don't know, six, I don't know, let's go to Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath. You shall do no work on the Sabbath day. Does a Christian believe you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath day? Do you, by nature, if you accept Jesus, do no work on the Sabbath day? And if you say, say yes, I'd like to know what work is. So, fundamentally, number one I've demonstrated, again, this is a book that was given to us as Jews. It's our book. We know what it says. We know what it says in Jeremiah. And when someone comes up to us and they quote us the New Covenant, we know what the next line is. The Talmud tells you that if a heretic comes to you and tells you something that confuses you, read the next line. It's pretty much what we have to do here. Historically speaking, the only Jews who converted historically in the olden days was at the point of the sword. Are there Jews who've accepted Jesus nowadays? Of course. The past 100 years, 200 years have been devastating to the Jews. People have lost knowledge. My grandfather grew up in a traditional home, Poland, right? Taken to the uh, concentration camps. After the war, not a believer, not practicing. You walk over to him in the street, you show him some things out of context, maybe he'll believe. My father, who was born in a DP camp in Germany, decided to retake up the, the mantle of Judaism. So I know a little more. You can find hundreds of Jews, thousands of Jews, the majority of Jews who don't know their own religion. Pretty easy to trick them. Take a verse out of context, quote him Jeremiah, and say, don't you know there's a new covenant? Oh yeah, what is it? Well, the guy's going to die. You don't have to do the law anymore. Really? That's not what it says, but he didn't look at the next line. Right? I think we've covered the fact, and I want to repeat. I, as a Jew, and anyone else here as a Jew, if you want to know what to do to be righteous, you have a choice. You could listen to God, who speaks to you today, in 2017, in Deuteronomy 30, saying very clearly, obey my laws and commandments. Don't listen to someone who says you can't. It's not up in heaven for someone to bring it down to you. And just do it. Didn't mean to quote Nike. I cede my time. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Freitag. Okay, we're going to now move to closing statements. Dr. Brown. All right, well, you know, I've done lots of debates, and one thing I know is if someone says they're going to disprove a point and they don't disprove any, it's because they can't disprove the point because the point stands. So my entire opening statement from beginning to end has not been rebutted, not a syllable, not a word. Remember, we were told there's so, so many cut and paste put together not one was picked out, not one was refuted, not one was shown to be mistranslated, and if there was a time to do it, you do it in the rebuttal, right? All the rabbinic literature I quoted out of context, but never heard one. And I keep getting accused of misquoting Jeremiah when what's happening is what I say about Jeremiah is being misquoted, <laughs> being misrepresented each time. And remember, when God makes a covenant, there's always blood, blood covenant. Exodus 24, this is the blood of the covenant 
that's, that's being made for the house of Israel. And, and when people in, in the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures were called righteous, they're called righteous because they obeyed the law, which included atonement for sin. And, and that is what God has laid out, and that's what the Messiah provides, the death of the righteous providing atonement. So, so go ahead, turn to God, seek to observe the Torah. No one's saying not to, but observe all of it and recognize that God promised us a prophet, and he raised him up in Yeshua in Deuteronomy 18. And he promised us lasting atonement in the rest of the scriptures, and he's given it to us. Don't just do it on your own. Do it with the Messiah's saving, transforming help. You know, it, it's interesting. The, the prophets, they didn't rail against blood sacrifices any more than they railed against hypocritical prayer, hypocritical Sabbath observance. In the very verses that were quoted from Isaiah 1, God said, I've had it with your Sabbaths. Why? Because of hypocrisy. The issue was not blood sacrifices. The issue was hypocrisy. And that remains the issue. And that's one of the things Yeshua goes after most strongly in the New Covenant writings, hypocrisy among our people. Again, I'm going to stand before God with heart and soul, seeking to obey him with every fiber of my being, day and night. And I'm going to rely on the mercy of God. I'm going to rely on the atonement that's been provided once and for all. You know, there's a story a few years back at Harvard University that there were two dads there, proud dads, a Catholic dad and a Jewish dad, and their sons were graduating. So the Catholic dad says to the, uh, Jewish dad says to the Catholic dad, so what's your son doing when he, he gets out of school here? And what's next? He said, he's very religious, very serious. He's going to seminary, he's gonna become a priest. The Jewish dad said, a priest, that's it? The Catholic dad said, no, no, I mean, my son is a very serious young man. Maybe one day he could be a bishop. And the Jewish dad said, a bishop, that's it? The Catholic dad's a little surprised. He goes, well, I don't know. I don't, maybe, maybe one day my son could be a cardinal. Jewish dad said, a cardinal, that's it? Catholic dad's taken aback. He said, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe one day my son will be the pope. Jewish dad said, the pope? That's it? Catholic dad's completely exasperated. He throws up his hands. He says, what do you want him to be, God? And the Jewish dad said, one of our boys made it. <laughs> okay. There's a whole theology here. We can debate all that. But the point is, the point is this. He's, he's one of us. He, 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 is, he is the one that accomplished the mission. He's the one that brought the knowledge of God to the rest of the world without requiring Gentile Christians ever to observe the Torah. And what he frees us from, what he frees us from is the condemnation that we all have disobeyed. Uh, look, I read in the Ten Commands also, don't covet. I read in the scriptures that we're to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and our neighbors, ourselves. If I'm gonna say, I've done it perfectly, I think when I stand before the light of God's holiness, I'll be shocked, and he'll speak about my hypocrisy as well. Thank God the Messiah died to take our place as the sacrifices foreshadowed, as the prophets explicitly declared, and as I quoted to you, without rebuttal or response. And when we turn in repentance, what does Paul say in Acts 20? His message to Jew and Gentile, repentance towards God and faith in Yeshua the Messiah. How does he describe his message in Acts 26, 20? He said, I preach that people should repent, and turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. 
The Messiah came to transform us. And as we know him and follow him and take this message to our Jewish people and to the ends of the world, then he will return. When his Jewish people welcome him, he will return. Our one and only Messiah, Jesus Yeshua. Welcome him into your hearts. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Rabbi Freitag, your closing statements. Yeah. So it's interesting that I was told that I didn't respond because it's hard to tell. You know, if you're talking to someone who's got a big old web of ambiguous things putting together and all you ask is for one clear statement to say it, because what you're trying to refute is a clear statement. I mean, sure, we can get in the trenches and deal with each individual one. We don't have time. I'd be glad to do it. I'm available for any Jew here who would like to speak about it. I want to make myself available. Of course, Dr. Brown mentioned that the people who were declared righteous in the Bible is because they had atonement. As I mentioned earlier, that is not true. Ezekiel 14, 14 describes Daniel as righteous. There was no sacrifice during his time. You know, <clears throat> there is a, a story about a kid, Jewish kids going to Jewish school. Things aren't going so well. So uh, father's like, look, you're not going to do so well in Jewish school. Send you to Catholic school. Kid comes back from school. He is scared straight. He ain't moving. Right? And dad's like, wow. So what happened in school? He said, he said the last kid, the last Jew who came here didn't behave. Look what we did to him. <laughs> Listen, we Jews are a stiff-necked people. When God came to us and he asked, you want my Torah? You know what we said? Na'asevenishma. We will do and we will hear. We are buying. We're not selling. We're here to listen to what you have to tell us. Talk and we will listen. Tell us what you want. And God says over and over and over. Do it yourself. Take a little stroll tonight through the Bible. Count how many times God says directly to the Jews, clearly, unambiguously, what I want you to do is keep my commandments. Count it. I ran out. I, was, I made three pages. It was, I got to stop. Right? Count how many times. Then count how many times, unambiguously and clearly it says, that one day it will change. A person will die and you will no longer need the law or, no, or you're not able to keep the law. Look for it. Look for the idea that something that God took that covenant and instead of making you actually do the law, you know, keep kosher, fringes on your cor the corner of your garments, that kind of stuff. It's this idea that, no, you don't actually do it. Someone died and you don't need to do it. Like that guy on the street who told you, you don't really want to buy the milk. You want to give me the money for me to buy the milk and I'll drink it and that's as if your dad is drinking it. My dad told me, buy him some milk. He made it blunt and clear. Don't try to reinterpret what he said because he never once said anything else. There's a young woman in Atlanta who got involved in some of our programming and she told me that we found out that she, her, her parents were believers in Jesus. I don't call him Yeshua because that's a, uh, you know, Judaizing, Judaizing of Christianity. It's Jesus. And she wanted to know, why are my grandparents so mad? What happened over there? She didn't know. We sat down, we talked about it. Were they fools? Were Jews fools? Were they, were they nuts? Isn't it obvious? 
Why did the Jews for a thousand years walk themselves down to an auto de fa in Spain to be burnt at the stake? According to the Christian, that person died a fool and went straight to hell forever. That's what the Christian believes. Were they fools? Did they miss something? No. It's because we're stiff-necked. And because God spoke to us and said, do my commandments. And we told him, we will do and we will hear. We're going to do whatever you tell us. We're not selling. We're buying. And if someone comes along and tells us, don't listen to your father, don't pay attention to what he said clearly and unambiguously, I've got a whole big concoction that I made. Do we have time to go through it and show you how it's silly? No. We don't have time. I've got 49 seconds on the screen. There's plenty of places that you can go on the online to look through it. I'll speak to you. If you're Jewish and you'd like to speak about it, I'd be glad to take you through it. But nowhere, not once, does the Bible, the Tanakh, ever state the most fundamental idea that Christianity claims, that we no longer have to keep the law, and that the covenant is about someone who died, and that you don't keep the law, not once, ever. And that is why, to this day, we remain dedicated Jews. Thank you, Rabbi Feitag. Okay, we're now going to go into Q&A. I believe we have two microphones. We have one up here. Is there two? Oh, this is the second one? Yeah, that's the second. Oh, what am I using? Should, should we use this one? <laughs> okay. Okay, no, so for we're those good. who have questions. Oh, got a second one. Perfect. Look at that. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so we have two mics. One over here. One over here. Yep. Uh, um, just one, uh, I've, I've talked to camera, so I'm going to talk, uh, give a few more instructions. Sure. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, if you want to ask a question, you see where the stairs come down to the main floor on this side and over here, if you just form a line and we'll take whoever's at the front of the line. When you ask a question, we ask that you keep it succinct, short, about a minute, and then you can address your question to either one of our debaters. They will respond first. I think we had said about like three minutes. Uh, two, two minutes. Two, two minutes. minutes. And then a one-minute rebuttal. So two-minute response and then a one-minute rebuttal from the other speaker. So you, this side can go first, and I'll come to this side with the mic. So you'll go second. Uh, Rabbi Freetag, uh, according to the Talmud and Maimonides, there are 613 commandments in the written Torah. Throughout your presentation, you said that it is required for Jews to follow all the commandments and that you can do it and that you can be righteous for doing all of them. I'm curious, what percentage of the 613 mitzvot do you observe today? And do you give yourself a free pass for the ones you don't observe? So what percentage and do you get a free pass? Excellent, 613 commandments, absolutely correct. How many do we observe? Well, I'm not a priest, so I can't do any of the ones that are obligatory on a priest. We don't have a temple unless you'd like to go over there and convince the folks on top of that hill that they'd let us build a temple, so we can't do those. <laughs> so there's quite a number of commandments that I cannot keep because of the nature of the reality or the fact that God has put it out of my reach. If I told you and I ask you, do you obey American law? You say, of course I do. I say, that's funny, you didn't register your boat. You say, I don't have a boat. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I didn't register it. I make an effort to observe every law that I possibly can. What do I do when I make a mistake? Do I give myself a pass? Of course not. 
I open Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1 says, don't, don't fret. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. If your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as snow. Change your ways, repent, pray to God. You know, like in 1 Kings. The question is, I'm the one who said I can do it? God said it, Deuteronomy 30. He said, don't listen to someone who can do it. So eat, who says you can't do it? Either the meaning of that is, you really can keep it perfectly, which obviously it doesn't mean. It means you can. You can be righteous through the law and the observance. Do your best, repent when you make a mistake, and I will forgive you, Isaiah 1. It's not that hard. That's what an observant Jew does. Observant Jew means dedicated to observing as much as we can. Are we or do we fail? Of course we do. That's why the prophets talk about repentance all the time. That's why our job is to repent when we, when we fail. Absolutely. We couldn't keep 613, as I pointed out. I'm not a priest. There's all sorts of laws that are about priests. I'm not a priest. How do I do that? There's laws that apply only to the land of Israel. I don't live there. I would appreciate some donations. I'll move. <laughs> I cede my time. Okay, any rebuttal? Uh, sure, uh, it's, a, it's a terrific question. And of course, it exposes a major Achilles heel of the whole presentation. Roughly 75% of the forever commandments given to Israel, these are for all generations, roughly 75% a Jew cannot keep without living in the land with sovereignty and a functioning temple and priesthood. Either God has left us unable to keep the vast majority of the forever commandments or he has given us a better way. What's also fascinating is that in Deuteronomy twice we're told don't add, don't take away. And the vast majority of what an Orthodox Jew today does is not found in the written Torah at all. There are additions and some of the additions change the meaning of what's written. In fact, there are some rabbinic traditions that take a, a verse in Torah and turn it upside down, cut it in half, turn it upside down, so it now means the opposite of what it said. So there is no one in this room that is keeping the Torah as it was given to Moses. Either God has provided help for us so that we have atonement, and yes, we seek to obey him, or we are all condemned, one way or the other. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, Dr. Brown, I was wondering, um, what do you say about King David being righteous when they did not sacrifice or practice sacrifice during that time? Uh, right, you mean Daniel? Yes, sir, uh, I'm sorry, David. I'm sorry. Right, I, I did address it briefly as, as I spoke, but, but first let's recognize that the ones that are spoken of in right, as being righteous in Scripture, all of them fell short in different ways, but part of being righteous was having the whole Torah, which included the atonement system. Thankfully, what are we called to do? Uh, Genesis 15, Abraham believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6, right? So if we do not have the ability to do a particular thing but can believe God's promise of mercy, that is sufficient. So Daniel is the one who tells us that the Messiah will come and, and bring atonement before the second temple was destroyed. So if, if a Jew is unable to physically make atonement, but can believe in God's promise of what the Messiah will do, as Daniel did, then that is certainly sufficient. The other thing we have to realize is this, that the Bible can speak of someone living righteously, meaning that the tenor of their life is they're keeping the commandments. It doesn't mean that they don't need atonement. And what we know is that the Jewish people living in exile as a whole had no national assurance. God made that very plain. Again, I didn't make that up. Uh, Second Chronicles, the seventh chapter, God says it plainly, that if he destroyed the temple, there would be no national atonement, no national forgiveness. We would be under judgment. So what does an individual Jew do? They look to God for mercy through what the Messiah has done. We look back. 
or for what the Messiah will do, we look forward. That's what Daniel was able to do. That's what we're able to do today. Okay. So it's interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that the answer to that question of how did Daniel become righteous in spite of the fact there's no sacrifice was, it's true, people fail, and in spite of, the, of sacrifice, they can still be forgiven through their faith. Kind of like I said. There's no atonement, there's no sacrifice, and you are forgiven in spite of your failings through your faith, through your repentance. And I don't know how we're disagreeing. That's what I've been saying. I don't, know what, I don't know how that answers the question of how you get atonement without a sacrifice, but okay. Okay, great. Over here. <coughs> My question is for Rabbi Freitag. Um, just some background on scripture from the New Testament. Um, in Matthew 16, it says, Now the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Yeshua, they asked him, Show us a sign from heaven. And if you skip down, he says, An evil and adulterous generation clamors for a sign, yet no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And then he clarifies, Yeshua clarifies in Matthew 16, that he, from that time on, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things uh, from the elders and ruling the Kohonim and Torah scholars and be killed and raised on the third day. So he's saying... The, the way I'm going to prove that I am who I claim to be, claim to be the Messiah, is I'm going to die and rise from the dead. So my question is, I don't know what your, your position is on whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, but if he did rise from the dead, why would God raise someone from the dead which would prove their Messiahship if he's not the Messiah? You really want to know my answer? It never happened. The book was written to convince people of an idea that did not happen. We don't believe in that. Not a word of it. I don't have to tell you. All right, so in response then, if it did happen, it's true. That, that would be the, the offshoot of that. I know some rabbis say even if it did happen, it wouldn't change anything. But Rabbi Freitag seems to be saying it didn't happen. So because we know it happened for many, many reasons, there are historical and psychological studies done that indicate that the only logical explanation for these followers of him Remember, they're depressed after he dies. They don't understand it. Why did he die? We thought he was going to save the world. They're depressed. They're fearful. They're basically dropping out. He then appears to them. There is no example in history of mass hallucination where everyone thought their follower physically rose. Even the whole Lubavitcher Rebbe movement, he's the Messiah. That, that fizzled with so many because you, you just couldn't keep saying that, that he rose when he clearly hadn't. But these same ones who were discouraged and ready to quit, they died. You want to talk about suffering. They were, they were beheaded upside down. They were stoned to death. They were boiled in oil. And they wouldn't back off because they knew that the Messiah had died and risen from the dead. So it, it happened. Face the facts. Okay. Next question over here. Uh, yeah, I had a question more in terms of practical matters. You know, they say Christians think in terms of theoreticals. Jews think in terms of practical matters, right? So for this is for Rabbi Freitag. Um, I have friends and relatives who hold Christian beliefs but are halakhically Jewish. They probably would be more observant if they had help. So I guess my question is this. Would you allow Jews um, who want to be observant but hold Christian beliefs to study at your kollel, affiliate, daven at your congregation, meet with you know, families, and fraternize with the firm community? The answer to your question is um, I, I, I have a passion and a mission to help Jews return to become Jews, even Jews who are confused and mistaken. Um, 
And there, ha there was a story like that in our community. That person did not approach me because I'd be very willing to speak to that person. There are other people who are in that boat in this community who I do speak to, who are halakhic Jews, and I'm glad to speak to them and help them in any way I can to do mitzvot, obey commandments. And if they want to talk about this issue of Jesus, glad to speak about it too. So yes, I'm glad. Whether that person is welcome in a community depends on how they interact with the community. Uh, is it deceptive? Is it straightforward? There's other aspects to it, and I'm not a communal leader, so I don't make those decisions. But that, it, that really depended. There was a story in Denver where a guy masqueraded as a, as a Jew. Really, he was trying to do his research to sort of like make, make uh, Jews look bad. But if a person is earnest, I have no problem. I'd be glad. Quick clarification. Quick, yeah, quick clarification. I mean, I've spoken to many uh, from rabbis, especially in the South, um, and they generally say if a Jew holds any Christian beliefs, they're not welcome here, they, can't, they especially can't study here, can't dive in here, can't affiliate with the congregation. Um, I think there was one other rabbi I knew who might do that, but like everyone else, you know, ASK rabbis, people in Texas, people in other communities said, no way, we're not going to do that because you could use it against us. Drew, I'm trying to protect you by not answering this question directly. I'm trying to protect you by not answering this question directly. Would you like me to? All right, so uh, just very quickly, of course a Christian has no business uh, going to a synagogue and just trying to fit in so as to proselytize, God forbid. Uh, but what's really interesting is, is a friend of mine is a professor, got his PhD at Cambridge, and he did research on Jewish observance in synagogues across America, Reformed, Conservative, Orthodox, Messianic Jewish, and found that the Messianic Jews and the Orthodox took observance of Shabbat most seriously, keeping of, of the Jewish calendar most seriously. And it's, it's an interesting thing to see that Messianic Jews are more serious about these things than Reform and Conservative Jews. And again, they get criticized for living like this as if they're being deceptive. But bottom line, though, is ultimately we cannot keep the Torah as given without so many other things. We cannot keep all of it. We need help, and that's what we're saying. We get the help we need through the Messiah. It's not either or. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mr. Freetag, Rabbi Freetag, um, I have to make a statement. Um, you're saying, this is not really my question, but your statement that it didn't happen is as offensive to me as if I told you the Holocaust never happened. Both have historical proofs. So, uh, secondly, my question is, as I understand in the Talmud, there's a teaching that uh, there was a red, uh, a scarlet thread wrapped around the door of the temple and one around the neck of the scapegoat. And as I understand, since 30 AD, that scarlet thread never turned white again. And one other clarification. Many Christians do believe, you believe in Jesus, that's it for the law. Well, that's not what Jesus himself said. In the four Gospels, which I went over a lot because I was a true atheist, there's only one commandment he gave. To love your, uh, it says, love each other as I have loved you, and they will know that you're my disciples. But he kept saying, if you keep my commandments, plural, then you're my friend. And I'm just telling you, I said, God, what the heck are you talking about? And he says, they're in Exodus 20. So a lot of people do believe 
that the Torah precepts are thrown away. And that's too bad, I think, for Christianity. Because he has not changed. He still wants us to do the right things, as you pointed out. So would you answer about the scarlet thread? All right, we had three or four things going on there. I was trying to, well, I'm going to respond to the first thing you said, because I had a grandmother who was in Auschwitz who, has a ta who had a tattoo on her arm. So I believe that happened. And if it's offensive to you that there are people who don't believe in Jesus, I can't help you. Hmm? Am I supposed to lie if to you? I went to you. If I'm, am I supposed to lie and tell you I believe something else? If I went to you and said the Holocaust didn't happen, you're full of it. Would that? Would you go? No. Okay. Maybe it didn't happen. Uh, with respect, he's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. Of course, he doesn't believe in this, and he should be free to express himself. I agree. And and he apologized at the beginning, saying he didn't want to offend Christians. So please, please okay. don't. Uh, that's his absolute. I'm glad you're being honest, sir. Thank you. Appreciate uh, it's it. uh, it's unfortunate in. you're uncomfortable. Because of this, I understand. I'm not that uncomfortable. Right, but I thank you for being it. honest and candid. Yeah. But can you answer about the scarlet thread? I, I'm not sure what the question was. There was, when the scapegoat was thrown, well, they say thrown over the cliff, but let go in the, in, the des or in the wilderness as is written. There was also a scarlet thread put on his neck and, and on the doors of the temple. They knew the, the scapegoat was accepted when that scarlet thread on the temple turned white. And it did all the time up until 30 AD. Can you tell me why it quit turning white? I'm not familiar with what you're quoting. I know that there is an idea that th of the scapegoat, and um, we no longer have it like we have none of the uh, sacrificial rites. It doesn't really affect me practically. It doesn't change my beliefs because God tells me what to do. I, I don't know what the, what the deeper meaning of it is, but as far as I know, God tells me to keep the law and never told me otherwise, so not sure what to tell you. Yeah, so just to clarify, Rabbi, you know Talmud far better than I. I just happened I don't to know, know. I don't know the entire Talmud. Yeah, I just happened My to dad's know, finished it. I have to know this tradition well. Okay. So in, in Babylonian Talmud, in Balvi Yoma 39a and b, it tells us that there were four different things that happened on the Day of Atonement every year that indicated that God accepted the sacrifices and repentance. The repentance of the people was accepted. And one of them was a scarlet thread put on the head, the, the horn of a goat or on the temple doors, and it would turn white. Isaiah 118, your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. There are some other signs, but for uh, clarity, we'll just make this short. So in the days of Shimon HaTzadik, who was a righteous uh, uh, priest, according to the Talmud, 40 straight years, all the sacrifices were accepted. Then sometimes yes, sometimes no. The atonement, the repentance was accepted. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But the last 40 years before the temple would, was destroyed, which is, coincides with when the Messiah died on the cross, that all four signs came up negative, and the sacrifices, the repentance was not accepted. So many Messianic Jews say, that's, that's telling us that that's when God said no more. No more, your repentance is not sufficient, your sacrifice is not sufficient. I provided the better way. So I find it to be a very interesting account, personally. Thank you, over here. Oh, Rabbi Freitag, throughout the debate, you mentioned that uh, Dr. Brown had taken uh, Talmudic comments out of context. You also mentioned whether with his Haggai or Zechariah that there's webs and things, but there's really no connection. And you said you would talk about what those are. Could you? cite something in the Talmud or something between Haggai and Zechariah that he took out of context? Yeah, certainly. Uh, we only have two minutes. We can't cover it all because, and I'll just give you a general sense, then I'll address the specifics. Generally speaking, if you want a good example of this, open up your book of Matthew, which quotes all of the various proof texts of the Messiah, and then go read the original text. 
Ask yourself, is this saying what, Messiah, what Matthew is claiming? No. Very similar to what Dr. Brown was saying. For example, Psalm 110, he quotes Psalm 110. Who is it about? Who's, who's Psalm 110 about? Well, I don't know, let's, let's give a look. Well, he was telling us that it's about Jesus and about a Messiah. So I see here, it says, regarding David a Psalm, the word of Hashem to my master, wait at my right until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. So God is gonna take this person and destroy his enemies. I don't know, I thought Jesus was handed over to his enemies. Your people and volunteer, and the rest of it, you know, it, it's pretty clear this is not about Jesus and it's not messianic either. Um, another example would be, just as an example about the, uh, the Talmudic statement about the death of the righteous atoning. So for those of you who have a Talmud at home, I don't know how many of you do, I'm kidding. Moed Katan 25a. Moed Katan speaks about the death of the righteous. And here's what it says. It says, someone who does not mourn for the death of a righteous person suffers terrible things. But someone who mourns for a righteous person, his sins are forgiven. I don't understand. Why are you punished for not mourning for the death of the righteous if the guy died, the righteous died, so now you're atoned. Why are you punished if you don't mourn? Oh, it's the mourning for the righteous that atones. Like in Israel, where there was a great sage, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Arbach, 800,000 people went to his funeral. There's no stadium for that, it's just the streets. When Jews get out in the street and mourn for a righteous person and show God, we'll shut down our shops, we'll close down our life to mourn for a righteous person, that atones. You want to quote me, the Talmud says a lie and says the death of the righteous atones, but then what about the fact that the Talmud says the death of the righteous, if you don't mourn, hurts you. It's the mourning that happens. So that Talmud is my specialty, so. Yeah, first, let me correct it. It's not the mourning. It, it can tie in, but that's not. There's statement after statement about it. Again, I quote Rabbi Beryl Wine. Another consideration tinged the Jewish response to the slaughter of its people. It was an old Jewish tradition dating back to biblical times that the death of the righteousness and served as an expiation for the sins of the nation and the world. The stories of Isaac, Nadab, Abihu, the prophetic description of Israel as the long-suffering servant of the Lord, the sacrificial service in the temple all served to reinforce this basic concept of the death of the righteous as an atonement for the sins of other men. Yes, coupled with repentance, but it's not primarily mentioned in the context of mourning. I've looked at all the Talmudic statements on that, and it's not primarily in the context of mourning. Also, Psalm 110, I quoted accurately. I said it's either a court poet speaking about David or David speaking to the Messiah, that he will be a priestly king. And of course, ultimately, he will rule and reign over the ends of the earth and all of his enemies will be smashed. As for Matthew, you have to understand what he's doing as a Jewish interpreter. He quotes Hosea 11 to say, as it happened to Israel, God's son, so it happened to the Messiah, God's son. But again, I find it funny. There were 20 minutes of rebuttal time to rebut me and at the end he said, if you have a question, come talk to me privately. So I, again, just look at the fact, nothing's been rebutted, not a syllable, not, nothing was rebutted. Okay, next question over here. I want to follow up what Dr. Brown just said a moment ago. My question, the question of the debate was, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? Which alludes to the fact that there will be a Jewish Messiah whom's prophesied over and over in the scriptures. And my question to you is, do you believe, which you haven't said yet, in a coming Messiah? Don't you think Hashem would reveal how we would know him? How would you recognize him? And what will be the purpose of his coming? That was for me, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. The way I would recognize the Messiah is by the specific statements that are very, very clear in the text. Nachmanides, in his debate in Barcelona, said an interesting thing in his opening. He said, when you want to lie, you make sure your witnesses are far away. So he says, the Christian description of the Messiah always makes sure that all of the things that are clear that the Messiah has to accomplish, he never did. 
Jesus did not gather the Jews. He didn't build the temple. He didn't bring peace on earth. didn't bring knowledge of God. All those things that you would wake up in the morning and turn on the TV and see, he didn't do. But there's this new thing. If you just weave that web. But that's how I'll know who the Messiah is. I'll wake up one morning and we will hear that the Jews are going back to Israel. The enemies of the Jews are being defeated. The temple's being rebuilt. The glory of the Jews living in the land of Israel as they are supposed to, as a priestly nation, is happening again. That's how I'll know. It's pretty clear, actually. I haven't heard yeah. one scripture verse yet from the Jewish scriptures that reveals anything about who this Messiah is going to be. And I'm sure there you say, it's you say who? in the scriptures. Yeah. There is prophecies of a coming Messiah. Mm -hmm. We can't just say one day we're going to wake up and he's going to be peace on earth. Well, what, you know, the we, person there must who brings be that some re revelation to us to know who he is. Well, I, I'm what sorry if I to told say you that I was the Messiah. I'm sorry to say that Tanakh doesn't give us his name. It does say that he's the son of David. We have a little bit of knowledge about him, but it simply doesn't say who he is. Maybe it's you. Listen, my friend, you got a chance. All I'm saying is that Tanakh. There's a lot of signs out there with all sorts of I names. I can tell you it's not me, for sure. I, I don't know. Put up a sign and say, for Messiah, they'll vote for you in the 6th you know, district over here. Listen, it doesn't tell us what the guy's name is. It says what he's going to accomplish. So I will know who it is when someone accomplishes that. I don't have a more, believe me, if I knew who the Messiah was going to be, whew, I'd be a lot more famous than some random guy in Dunwoody. You know okay, it, it's there okay. in Thank many, you. many verses we, of Scripture. We, we, have, okay. we have one minute for... Yeah, so uh, to be clear, the rabbi didn't quote verses, but he could have. He could have quoted Isaiah 11 about regathering exiles. He could have quoted Zechariah 6 about rebuilding the temple. So I, I affirm all those. We just left out the others. So this idea that the Messiah accomplished nothing tangible. How about this? How about this? How about being rejected by his own people and yet being a light to the nations that God's salvation would go to the ends of the earth. How about the fact that you can go into the most obscure jungle, outlying place in the world, and find people worshiping the God of Israel through Jesus the Messiah? I'd say that's pretty big. How about if I just said, raise your hand if the Messiah has radically transformed your life. If that's you, just raise your hand. If Jesus the Messiah is radically, I, I'd say that's not just distant, that, that, and, and plenty of the hands that raised uh, one up are Jewish hands. So, of course, it's demonstrable. He came when he had to come. Remember, if they don't come, whoever the candidate is, if they don't come before the second temple is destroyed, make atonement for sin and bring a greater glory to the temple, they can't be the Messiah. Okay, we're going to keep going with questions. Yes. Uh, first off, I want to thank uh, Rabbi Freitag for being here, uh, obviously, on uh, such short notice and inability to prepare. <laughs> And obviously, it is not the most comfortable place for you to be. And I just very much appreciate it. And I've appreciated this debate very much. So um, my question starts off with one of the Jewish objections to Jesus as being Messiah is that uh, the Messiah will come just as a mortal man, whereas Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and basically deity. So uh, with that in mind, I'd like to read um, scripture. I'd like to read from Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. And it's a prophecy, at least I believe, and you can debate me, it's a prophecy about uh, Moshiach, uh, the coming Messiah. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And I am no Hebrew scholar, but when I look up verse 6 in uh, my Tanakh, it calls Moshiach yud Hey vav Hey, our righteousness. And I would like to know how you reconcile that in an Orthodox Jewish framework. I wonder why and how would God give some mortal man his very own holy sacred name of yud Hey vav Hey, And not only that, it doesn't say that uh, doesn't say that the law, our righteousness, it says the Lord, yud Hey vav Hey, our righteousness, Yeshua, and by his blood, he is our atonement. I didn't look to my right when you were asking the question to see if Dr. Brown cringed when you asked, because he knows what I'm going to say. Okay. And if I do not have yeah, a- I'm sorry, it's to Dr. Freitag. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't have a, 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 I don't have the uh, exact uh, text in front of me. If someone could take out, if you have a searchable Bible here, please search the phrase, God, our righteousness, that exact phrase. Your statement is that, therefore, this verse is clearly stating that the Messiah was also God. Is yes. that correct? Yes. Okay. Does anyone have a, um, the ability to search? I apologize. My time is running out. Well, what what I verse are you looking for? Jerusalem. 33, chapter 33, Thank verses you. 14 to 16. Thank Jeremiah you. 33, this is a, this is an honest 14 guy. to 16. <laughs> I told you I'm not a scholar. Behold, days are coming, the word of God, when I will fulfill the favorable matter that I spoke concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a sprout of righteousness to sprout forth from David, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in security, and this is what people will call her, God is our righteousness. The same words in Hebrew. Is Jerusalem God? So you've got a choice. If you say it is, then you've got a quinity, not a trinity. And one of them is Jerusalem. Or maybe that's not what that means. Yeah, you know, interesting about we don't have the name of the Messiah. You know, it doesn't say the Messiah's name will be Andrew. By the way, that's just a shout out to my grandson watching named Andrew. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't say that. But um, I, I agree uh, with the point. I just wrote a, a, an article, an academic article on the passage that, that Adonai Tzidkenu is best translated as Adonai or yud heh is our righteousness. Uh, and then that's the name of the city of Jerusalem in the 33rd chapter. But it's interesting that when you have someone with the, the divine name, like Eliyahu, my God is, is Hashem, Yahweh, it's always shortened. Here the Messiah actually bears the full divine name. That's unusual. There's an unusual association. Exodus 23, God says about the angel of the Lord, my name is in him, and therefore he carries the presence of God in a unique way. Isaiah 9, 6 says of the Messiah, his name will be Pelioetz El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. One of his names is El Gibor, mighty God. So we believe in one God, one God only. But he sits enthroned in heaven, fills the universe with his presence, and sometimes touches base here on earth among us. That's what he did in the person of the Messiah who then bears the very presence of God himself. Okay. I have to go. 
Oh, okay. Because well, yeah, there was five more minutes left in Q and A. There was. Okay, yeah. fine, fine. No problem. Problem. Okay, so we've only got five more minutes left in Q and A. So uh, let's keep the questions as brief as possible, um, and we may have to minimize some of the response time as well. Okay, um, I have a question or a, a Bible verse that I would like both of you to uh, comment on, if you would. And I do not have my reading glasses, so I'm doing my best here. I left them in the car. So it's Isaiah chapter 9, and it's, uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And also, I would like to know if Dr. Brown would comment on the difference between the historical church and the biblical church. Uh, a lot of people are not aware that evangelical Christians throughout history also suffered under the papal church. It's been estimated up to a million Christians were burned at the stake by the, uh, the papal church. And there was always a line of true believers all through history, the Paulicans, the Waldenises, the Anabaptists. And thirdly, I'd just like to say to Rabbi Freiturg that I'm a Gentile, but I, I do cover my head. Um, I love the Jewish people. I attend a Messianic church. And we love Israel, we love the Jews, and if you go to e any evangelical church in this country, there will be an Israeli flag there. So we apologize for what apologize. happened. You have nothing to apologize for. we do for. love the Jews. I, we, I know that, we and love that's why I prefer living here in the South. I, I tell people, <laughs> okay. I tell people I've converted to Southern. Okay, so we're gonna give 20 seconds for both parties to go ahead and respond to the question, to the response of the... Yes, yeah, so, so Isaiah 9.6 or 9.5 in the Hebrew, the, the Targum, the Aramaic paraphrase, tries to put all the titles on God, but it doesn't work exegetically or syntactically. It is telling us that one of the titles of Messiah will be Mighty God. That is because he is in a unique way, God among us, and bears the very divine presence in a unique way. It is a prophecy, Psalm 45.7, the same thing. He's called Elohim, God. Uh, yeah, so Isaiah 9 begins, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, light has shone upon them. You exalted the nation. You increased its joy. For the yoke of, they rejoice before you like the joy of harvest time, as they would exult when they divide spoils. For the yoke of its burden and the staff on its shoulder, the rod that oppressed them, you smashed like the day of Midian. If this is describing Jesus, that was a pretty bad time for the Jews. They weren't walking in light and having the rod of oppression smashed. And what's even stranger is that the phrase about a child born to us is mistranslated in the Christian scripture. As it says, for a child has been born to us. It does not say a child will be born. And this is long before Jesus. Okay, so as we're in the lightning round. Um, okay, one more question here. Um, this is for Rabbi Freetag. Um, I don't have a question. I just wanted to make a statement, but I don't want to take up other people's time for questions. So would you rather I make your a statement to you after? Yeah, that's fine. We'll meet. We'll talk. That's great. Okay, so we'll go next then. Yes. Just a quick, quick, quick question, uh, Dr. Brown. Where in the New Testament does it say God changed the Sabbath day from the seventh day to the first? And where does he tell people, don't circumcise your boys anymore? Neither. The New Testament never does. It was never changed. God never changed the, the Sabbath to, to the uh, eighth day. If, if Christians choose to worship, Gentile Christians, there's, there's nothing against it. But no, he never changed it, never said to stop circumcising. In fact, Paul went out of his way to demonstrate that he didn't teach those things about circumcision. And nobody ever heard of it in the New Testament days that the Sabbath had changed to Sunday. So it's not there. It's not in the Bible anywhere. 
It's just later church tradition. But remember, the vast majority of people come in, they were Gentiles, and, and the church became predominantly Gentile, often lost sight of its Jewish roots. So when Jews did live as Jews among the Christians, they didn't understand it. And it is true, by the way, historically, just like around the world today, Christians are not the persecutors, they're the persecuted. They're the ones being you know, ripped to shreds around the world to this day. So we have that in common. When I say we, all those who follow Jesus, we have that in common with our Jewish brethren. We, we've all suffered a lot for our faith over the centuries. Okay, we'll close that. Any response? I'd like to thank Dr. Brown for coming, and uh, I appreciate everyone here. Like I said, I guess the final thing I'd like to say is I did not come to insult Christians. Like I said earlier, I tell people I've been sprinkled with the Coke. I've converted the Southern. This is the place where I want to be. I am not going back. And I do not in any way intend to offend or hurt the feelings of people who are Christian. I far prefer to live among them and walk among them. And they are allies in the culture wars uh, that we live in. And uh, only because of the situation that this created in order to defend my people and prevent my Jews from being taken, as I, if I can interpret uh, homiletically, don't touch my anointed. I care about Jews. I have no interest in changing a Christian's mind. I care about my Jews. And my last thought is you can have the commandments and the Messiah too. Isn't that wonderful? And can we just one more time congratulate Rabbi Freitag on the bar mitzvah <laughs> yes. this weekend? Thank you both. Uh, as we close out, a few quick announcements. Um, so Dr. Brown will be speaking at Shabbat services at Congregation Beth Hillel this weekend, um, Friday, 8 p.m., Saturday, 11 a.m., so everyone is welcome to join. Um, and again, there'll be book signing and reception out in the atrium. Thank you again so much for coming. I don't Have know a wonderful evening. I'll sign your book if they want me to. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs>